God has hardwired us for happiness. God has built happiness and the desire for happiness into us. There was an original condition, this place that was called Eden, and happiness was, everybody was happy, and people and animals were in this happy environment, uh, and there was no fall yet, there was no sin in the world, there was no suffering, which was the result of that, there was no curse. And God made Adam and Eve to want to be happy, so that then, when they experienced the world they did, this perfect world, what they experienced was happiness. So when the serpent tempted Adam and Eve, he did it by offering happiness. The only reason that he could offer happiness to them in a way that would tempt them is if God had built into these perfect people the desire for happiness. The problem was not that he was calling them to happiness. God called them to happiness. The problem was that he was calling them to a happiness outside of God, contrary to the will of God. God had said, there's one tree in this garden and you can't eat the fruit of this tree. Everything else, eat freely of it. Anything you want to do, you can do. Just this one thing. And then Satan says, you know where real happiness will be found? It's in doing this one thing God told you not to do. So we are hardwired for happiness even after the fall. We still have this desire for happiness even after sin came into the world. None of us has ever experienced uh, a world without sin and suffering. None of us alive now today have ever known such a world. In fact, only two people in the history of the human race, Adam and Eve, experienced that sinless world. So we live in the middle of the story where everything's gone wrong. You know, I write some novels, and, and so usually there's like a beginning where things are going fairly well, and you establish the characters, and then there's an ending where there's a resolution, where things come together. The middle's just all conflict. Everything falls apart. Well, guess what? We're living in the middle of the story. But God, the author of the story, has great intentions and promises us he's going to cause all things to work together for good. But meanwhile, we haven't lost our desire for happiness. We still want to be happy. And our problem now is not that we want to be happy. Our problem is that we tend to think wrongly about where we can find that happiness. And so our hardwiring for happiness, which is a good thing and comes from God, can also become a very difficult and sometimes negative thing as we seek happiness in all the wrong places. Augustine in the fourth century said, in essence, all people desire to be happy. Anselm said the same thing. Aquinas, the great medieval theologian, said all people desire to be happy. Pascal, the French mathematician and philosopher, said all people seek happiness. He said it's the same reason that some people go to war and stay home from war. The people who think they'd be happy going to war go to war. Oh, it's a big sacrifice, but they feel like that's what they were made to do, and that's what they should do, and that's what they want to do, and they'll find happiness as they fulfill this duty. And then he said the people who stay home from war stay home for the same reason, that they think that's what's going to make them happy. 
So he ends up his statement by saying, all people seek happiness, even those who hang themselves. And to hang themselves is their attempt to find happiness, to relieve themselves of unhappiness. The Puritans also talked about how people seek happiness. Spurgeon talked about it. Wesley talked about it. Whitfield talked about it. And the world acknowledges it. All people are seeking happiness. Plato and Aristotle, uh, often it's, it's translated uh, happiness or it's flourishing or well-being that everyone seeks. This is universal language, historically both outside of the church and inside of the church. So in terms of evangelism today, let's use that language. Let's use that universal recognition that all people seek happiness. And don't tell people you shouldn't seek happiness. I mean, that's, that's like telling them they shouldn't be hungry or thirsty. No, they're hardwired for happiness as they are for hunger or thirst. What we need to do is not try to teach people not to be hungry and not to be thirsty, but to eat and drink the right things, the healthy things, the helpful things. So we shouldn't tell people don't want to be happy, just seek your happiness where it can truly be found in a way that is most fulfilling to you and most honoring to God. And those two, as we see in scripture, are intertwined. That which is for the glory of God is always for the good of his people. There was a psychologist and a motivational speaker who had a uh, radio program about the pursuit of happiness in New York City. And it was very, very popular. And they wrote books, they traveled around, they did their seminars. And then the last thing they did was put sacks over each other's head in a mutual suicide pact. And that's how they ended their lives. And I think what it did was it, it caught people by surprise, but it was a graphic reminder of how, yes, everybody's seeking happiness, but even the people who are writing about it and speaking about it and doing seminars on it can still, at their core, be terribly unhappy people, unable to cope with life and, and face life. So this is the appeal to every person, Christian and non-Christian. Yeah, we're all interested in happiness. We're all hardwired to be happy, but somehow we're not finding the very thing we seek. To pursue a thing is not synonymous with catching a thing. It's not synonymous with experiencing the reality of happiness. The gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ, of uh, being cleansed of guilt, of, of having a freedom, uh, happy is the person whose sins are forgiven, Psalm 32 says. That's something that the Christian worldview, God's word, offers in a very unique and substantial way. It gets to the sin problem that separates us from God, that alienates us from our happy creator who made us to be happy. And once that relationship gap is bridged in Christ, now we've got a foundation for our happiness. It's not just wishful thinking, I'm gonna try a thousand different ways to be happy but that God who desires my happiness has given me a means to that end 
in Christ, but of course he's more than a means to an end. He's a person. He is the very source of that happiness. He is the primary one from which all secondary happinesses come. Therefore, we should be able to look at all secondary happinesses and trace them back to the Christ from whom they come. My novel, Safely Home, I have two main characters, Ben Fielding, an American businessman, very entrepreneurial, very successful in business, and he's taking a trip to China. And he decides he wants to reconnect with his old Harvard roommate, Lee Chuan. The last he knew, Lee Chuan was going to become a college professor in China, and they've, they've lost contact with each other for something like 15 years. Well, he finds a way of connecting with his old friend on a business trip. He just wants to uh, spend some time with him, see how he's doing. He's shocked to discover that Li Chuan has never been a professor in China. Rather, he is a locksmith's assistant, one of the most brilliant students at Harvard University, had gotten all these awards, and he's not even a professor. He's a locksmith's assistant. Turns out the reason is because he is a Christian. He's a follower of Christ. Uh, he's part of an illegal local church. He's been arrested, gone to jail, and uh, he can't progress career-wise because no prestigious position will be awarded to someone who is known to be a, a Christian. So at first, Ben is just shocked and he just pities his friend. But he comes out and stays with his friend in their tiny, tiny little house that doesn't even have an inside toilet. It's way, way out on this, in this countryside. After a while, he sees Li Chuan's relationship with his wife, Ming Hua, and their son, Xin, and he's drawn toward them, and he realizes that his old friend, with all of the financial problems he has, with none of the wealth Ben Fielding has, what his friend has that he doesn't is happiness. He has a contentment, a happiness, even in the midst of his hardship, that Ben Fielding finds himself drawn to. He ends up envying his old friend, and it causes him to re-examine his own life and ask himself the question, how can somebody with so little be so happy when I, with so much, am not happy. And what it does is it captures the problem of all the false gods, of all the dead-end streets, of all the cul-de-sacs that we can go down in searching for happiness. But ultimately, some people who live in poverty, who live under persecution, some people who are in jail, find a peace and contentment, a happiness in Christ that those who are free and prosperous do not. We need to realize that the fall, the human fall into sin, the curse, did not create our longing for happiness. It derailed it. God made that longing 
But that derailing happened in terms of how we thought we could find happiness and where happiness belonged. So what we've done as an alternative is instead of trying to find happiness in God, we have tried to find happiness in all the stuff God has made. Now, because God has made this world, there's a lot of goodness in the world. There's what theologians call common grace, uh, that God gives goodness to all people. Uh, Paul, when he was preaching in Acts 17 on Mars Hill, talked about that God is not far from any of us, and he gives us the rains, and he gives us the sunshine and the crops to grow, and his goodness is evident in creation. But what happens is we can take that secondary thing we see in creation and we can make that our God. We can make that our creator. So we should be careful not to elevate the secondary above the primary. We need to look at the secondary and see God in that. So my relationship with my wife, I love her. She's wonderful. And God has used her to bring much happiness into my life. But if I make her my idol and set her up as she is the one who will bring me happiness, then I don't just set myself up, I set her up because she can never live up to those expectations. Only God can live up to the expectations of bringing us ultimate happiness. So yes, he uses a thousand secondary things, but we need to be careful not to worship them, but to worship him as the primary. So sometimes what ends up happening in the church is without meaning to, or maybe sometimes meaning to, we put God on the side of holiness and Satan on the side of happiness. That is a critical error. It's not only unbiblical, it's extremely ineffective because if people, not just unbelievers, but believers, are given a choice in life between something that will make them holy but unhappy and something that will make them happy but unholy, guess what they're going to choose? Ultimately, they're gonna choose the thing they believe will make them happy. Because we're hardwired for happiness in a way that we're not fully hardwired for holiness. Yes, if you understand what true holiness is, you realize it's fully compatible with your happiness. In fact, it's the very thing that will bring ultimate happiness to your life. But that requires a certain amount of thought and maturity and understanding to get that. So what we need to do is present to the world as we present the gospel, not only that there is holiness in Christ, and that's really important, holiness that means we're reconciled to God in a relationship with him, but that in that holiness of reconciliation to God, and living the way God has called us to live comes a profound and deep happiness that can be found nowhere else.